0: Hi there. Welcome to the No Film School podcast. This is Gigi Hawkins, and I'm excited for you to get to hear from Allison O'Daniel, director of The Tuba Thieves. We sat down a couple days before Sundance, where she was gearing up to have the world premiere of her film at the festival. So, The Tuba Thieves starts. From this actual event that happened in 2011 to 2013, a bunch of tubas were stolen from a Los Angeles high school. But it's not about the thefts. Instead, this film asks what it means to listen, like what you're doing here on this podcast, listening. The Tuba Thieves is part of the Sundance Next section, and it blends documentary and fictionalized performances and Allison has long made work that is considering the unique perspective that deaf people bring to sound. And I think this film is going to revolutionize the way we think about captioning. We talk about open captioning versus closed captioning and how this adds a whole other layer to the experience. So without spoiling anything, a couple things we touch upon are the 11 years of making this film and how Allison Designed this slow burn style of filmmaking and embraced it. The future of captioning, like I mentioned, breaking out of the rules of filmmaking and challenging what those rules are. And finally, being the champion of your own project, but also finding the champions along the way, both with labs and grants and sometimes flying solo. I'm excited for you to listen, and here we go. I'm here with Allison O'Daniel, the director of the Tuba Thieves. Thank you so much for being here, Allison. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Thank you for inviting me. Oh my gosh, it's it's so exciting! And congratulations on having your film at Sundance premiering. We're, we're pre-Sundance, so do you feel excited, nervous? How are you? How are you feeling about it all? Um, last night I was a nervous wreck, and then I. Screened it for a
1: few, like some some of the cast and crew. We got to watch it together, and especially the ones I I screened it for a few. But I wanted the people who were going with us, the main actors, um, the main performers, to really see it before they're in that Sundance audience. And I was so nervous, and then afterwards, I I was very calm. Like it felt, it just felt like so meaningful, and you know, like the people who. I care, i really deeply care about what they think. They were all warm and supportive. And so
0: I feel good right now. Yeah. So you can spend your time screening at Sundance just enjoying everyone else's experience of the film. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. That's amazing. Let's dig right in to some questions that I have. So the first thing that I wanted to speak with you about is the Tuba themes has existed in many forms as part of exhibits and galleries, and now it's a feature. Did you always know that you were working towards a feature? And what was that journey like? Yeah, I, um, I started out
1: writing a full feature like screenplay. And I mean, if, if I give you the really long story of which I'll try and do in a very quick way, I, basically, I made when I was in grad school. I went to two different grad schools. I went to Goldsmiths in London for a studio art program and then I went to UC Irvine and for also a studio art program. For Goldsmiths I really like followed the the school and the notoriety and the history of that program and what I knew of that program and then I actually left because it was the first place I really experienced institutional ableism and uh-huh. it was a great place in some ways and just really really painful in others. And when I started trying to figure out where I wanted to go to, to grad school. I feel like, first of all, I just want to acknowledge that I'm talking about film school, grad school, art school, and this is a, you know, no film school podcast.
0: We're not but, anti-film um, school. We we definitely <laughs> whatever you need for your journey, but in case you can't go to film school.
1: Yeah. Well, and I'm a deep believer in the real school happens on set, like when you're actually making the film. So, or some of the most valuable, not the real necessarily, but Anyway, so I started to figure out, you know, where I wanted to finish school. I went to um, UC Irvine to study with Yvonne Rayner, and so while I was there, that program at UC Irvine is a three-year grad program, and so I had I basically did four years of grad school. And after my second year of grad school, I was just like, oh my gosh, I've got to get out of here! Like, I am done with school. And I had this year, you know, I had one more year left. I was going to do a thesis project, and I was sort of like in this mindset of like, okay, I have a year, like how do I want to just totally take advantage of this time? Is there anything I just kind of dream of doing? And I was like, I'm going to make a feature film. And so I did. And so my, so actually in my my thesis year, I made this film called Night Sky. And I made a bunch of decisions when I made that film. And one of them was that I wanted to make a film with a cast and crew that was completely like spread across the deaf spectrum from totally hearing to totally deaf. When I finished that film in 2011, I was feeling... So sensitive to this just really beautiful diversity of everybody's experiences with hearing. Mm-hmm. And so, at that moment, when I was feeling really just like kind of moved of having finished that project, I heard about these tubas that have been stolen from a high school in LA. And then this over like a course of basically the fall semester, the fall school semester of 2011 into the winter break of 2012 and into the spring semester of 2012, all these tubas were stolen. That was really when like a bunch of schools were hit. And I was so amazed by the story and amazed by the way it was reported. And I think because I had this like extreme sensitivity to thinking about all these people's relationship to sound. I immediately was really curious about the students and and how they were then sitting through like music class without instruments and what that looks like and what that just on a very practical level like how they replace tubas etc cetera, etc. Cetera. So I made this decision that I wanted to make a film called The Tuba Thieves. I didn't really know what it was going to be about at the time. I knew it wasn't going to be about the thieves, and then I knew that I wanted to make a film backwards. I wanted to start with music this time, and I wanted to invite three composers to make me musical scores with me not intervening on what they made like I I mean that's not true I gave them each a list of like about eight to ten things to respond to but I didn't want to give them narrative I didn't I didn't know what the film was going to be about and I I was making this decision, like as I was deciding on this very early structure, I also decided that I wanted it to be a listening project, that I would be exploring what that meant. Mm -hmm. From the very beginning, and even now, I think there's these amazing moments where I just feel like, yeah, consistently, this film was absolutely a listening project. Uh And so what that means is that I was very, very open-minded to what would be kind of like absorbed into the story and the narrative of the film. I think for most people, there's this like understanding that there are these rules about how you make films. Even when people are talking about breaking rules, there are still these like hard and fast rules that people just like really deeply believe in and are committed to. And I don't, I really, I do not believe in rules for films at all. I think those have been done and they're amazing and I mean, it's amazing. We have an amazing, like you know, 150 year history of film. Yeah, it's still so young. Like 150 years is not that long. And so, yeah, I just basically was like, okay, I'm going to make a listening project, starting with music. I'm gonna like be open to what this film is about, and then I pretty much like started learning these anecdotes that became absorbed into the film like different things that based on the references I gave the composers that then started to become important or like the main character of the film now she had a small role in my first film and then she told me that she had been a drummer that she's deaf and she told me about the way that she had learned how to drum so she basically dated a musician and she went on tour with them and their drummer like set up a drum kit and she watched them drum and and that was how she learned and I was like Cool, do you want to be the main character of this film? I don't know what it is, but like, would you be open to this process? And luckily she said yes. And then I also started meeting with these different band directors and meeting the students and just develop basically I just started developing these relationships. Yeah. I did go to an art residency that was seven months long. And I had the music, the three pieces of music from the three composers when I went there and I listened to the music for seven months. And started writing kind of like any visual associations or like narrative associations that were coming up based on listening to the music. And I left after seven months and I had a screenplay. And I knew Nike, the main character, was going to be in it. There's many, many things in the screenplay that are still in, like that ended up in the film that were from the very beginning when I wrote it in 2012. And then there's lots of things that evolved and changed too. And so I just made a decision that I was really open to exploring what. A listening project even means in cinema. So, and then, like, kind of the next answer to this is that I had the screenplay. I had no idea how people raise funds for like a serious budget. Yeah. I didn't even really know what my budget was. Like, I was just kind of like, okay, I did this before. Like, I totally winged it. I was in a studio art program and I was like, how do you do this? Okay, this makes sense. And I had watched tons of films. Like, I was definitely a cinephile. Yeah. And so, so basically I like started applying to grants. The Wait. first grant I got was just $6,000 and I was like is there anything in this screenplay that I could make for $6,000 that could also stand on its own as like a little short film. So basically that was how I worked. I did that. The first one was like I'm so proud of it. It was really beautiful and I think that really helped. So, you know, and I I don't know that I was thinking this strategically, but it was very very visual and very like I don't know. There were things about it that I think helped me get the next grant. So right, right. You know, there were a lot of things that people started to be like, wow, that was so strategic. And I was like, I was not thinking of that as strategy, but I guess on some level, yeah, like it It was like a structure I chose on that I was really, that I chose and Ooh, yeah. that I was really interested in and, and I it, kind of
0: followed it. It gave you a pathway that let you build and it's in and- Create piecemeal, which I think is something you experience more in the documentary space. But the fact that you were—I don't know if reverse engineering is the right word—but that you were starting with sound and letting that inform the it? narrative—it's uh, it's fascinating and it's also refreshing to hear of a, of something that has come from making it work with what you have, and yeah. and that's something we have to remind ourselves a lot of as emerging filmmakers like what do you have access to right now and how can you continue to create and form and let that be something that could unlock something in the future for the project right
1: yeah and how do you make decisions about what to like splurge on and what to totally save on you know like where I was strategic was that I knew I I had a feature script I knew this was going to be a long time that I was going to be making this project. I was really comfortable with that. I was not... I actually am really interested in long-form projects. I did have this sense I wanted it to be no longer than 10 years, and it took me 11. So,
0: Okay, that's close. You see people go over budget. You went over timeline. I went over
1: my timeline. And, but the, the strategy that I did have was that at the very beginning, I knew I needed to have like the best camera, the best lenses. I knew that visually, whatever I shot in 2013 needed to match whatever I was going to film in like 2021 or whatever, you know. Cool. What did you so, shoot? What did you use? An Aria Alexa. And then we just used the amazing lenses, like every, basically all these Panavision lenses. Wow. So cool.
0: Yeah. I love that. Tell your story with Premiere Pro, the world's most popular video editing software. Its industry standard precision editing and trimming tools let you quickly craft the perfect story. For more info, visit adobe.com. I'd love to talk a little bit about your use of open captions and sound design. So throughout the film, there are captions that feel they are part of the film, the part of the narrative. I actually didn't know what open captions were uh, until after seeing this and then looking it up. So for example, there are captions, there's a, a sequence where there is one tuba note played for this long and it was infused. And so it's a long tuba note being played over, I, I believe multiple shots and, or was it one shot?
1: It ends up mostly being just the facade of Southgate High School. Yeah. And so we stay on that for, it does start in the shot right before that, but then it's really
0: like on that, on the high school in the dark at night. So there's a little bit of a pre-lap with the sound of the tuba, and then we hang on this one shot, and the open caption, which open caption means it's built into the narrative uh, as opposed to something that can be turned off. It reads, one tuba note played for this long. And they made me laugh out loud because i it added a whole layer to the experience, and it was such it was such a specific moment. Another example is when there's a a airplane flying, you play a lot with the sounds of Los Angeles and you're noting the the decibels of the sound, which you know as a as a I often am reading sound in scripts, and that-, that helped me. Again, adding a whole other layer and a whole other experience. And you also, the choice of the words that you have to describe the sound, like watching the film unlocked a different experience for me, thinking about audio. I, I come from the world of audio as Good. a podcast creator. I write and direct an audio as well. And then like I mentioned, I read scripted podcasts, but I think we often leave audio to the side when we're thinking of film of course it's sight and sound but it's so cool to hear how it was sound then sight for this film so i'm curious about the process of writing the open captions was that in the script from day 1 uh, or did you kind of edit that together how did that come to be
1: actually no it was it was not in the script i had a totally different goal at the very beginning of this film so I wanted to not have any captions and see if I could make the film so that everything you hear, you see the source of. So there's no mystery. There's, so, so basically, like instead of having captions, my goal originally was to make it so that they weren't necessary. And then I made that first scene and showed it to one of the composers. Her name's Christine Sen Kim, and she's deaf. And so I, when I showed her the scene, I could tell from her response that she was just like, okay, like she, was, she just seemed kind of underwhelmed and like, and then I was like, oh, okay, this isn't, this isn't totally accessible. Like this is not working. And so then I started to, oh, actually this other thing happened at the same time where when I was like editing the, the doing that final edit. I was trying to describe. Christine had used her voice in her score, and so she was humming in her score. And I, for some reason, thought that I needed to separate her vocal track from like the other, like that. I needed her her vocal vocals as a separate track. She didn't have it as a separate track. And then I asked her to recreate it, and she was like, "I can't." And then, um, so I was like, really committed to this idea, which looking back is ridiculous, but it did open up a whole, really like. Huge epic door for this film, which was that I tried to like listen to her humming and recreate it, and then take really detailed notes of everything that was like happening in my mouth and in my jaw and with my tongue and right before I started to send her these to recreate it, I was just like, these are the captions I have always dreamed of, like this is all I need. I don't need her to redo anything, yeah, and then it just opened up everything for me, and it, it really It was really reinforcing and beautiful because I realized that my authorship of what I needed was so valid and like so studied. Like, I was, I am such an expert in because I have always needed captions and I have always noticed and been angered by what, by how frequently, how bad they were. And so, this was in 2012. You know, I feel like since in the time that I've been making this film, there really has been a revolution of like just people thinking about accessibility and then also like Gen Z I think is watching everything with captions which is right. so like wonderful but basically it really opened up a door to think about like what do I need and in the end I actually invited a few other hard of hearing people to write the captions with me so it's not just me it's me and two other people contributed and I was just really really committed to this idea that we know what we need we can do this and like show people basically how to do better captioning yeah because I had so many experiences where like someone would have a music symbol and it's just like
0: it's just so rude you know but that it's basically mean, like it. yeah music's playing is it like is it Hans Zimmer is it like somebody on a triangle yeah
1: right it's just like there's something happening and I'm going to tell you what's happening, but I'm not going to tell you what it is. So it's, it doesn't really solve anything.
0: Yeah. So now have, have, it sounds like this is the first time you are, I mean, you, you and your community, you, you had a couple of co-writers for the captions specifically created what you want to see. Have yes. you seen captions in the world that are, Feel like they're at this level, or is this kind of like the groundbreaking that we're seeing in real time as you premiere at Sundance this week?
1: Yeah, I mean, in the in the last like year or two, I have started to see people doing a much better job. I've also told a lot of people how to do it. Wow. I actually like was having so many people reach out to me about like two two years ago, maybe a year ago even. In the last like three years, I was having so many people reach out to me asking how to do it and feeling a little bit like conflicted because I really, obviously, I want there to be good captioning. And yet I also was like, you're asking for something that I actually have put a lot of like, not just time labor into, but emotional labor and experiential labor. And so, yeah, I was so conflicted. It's like this interesting like, so I actually just went ahead and made a page on my website that says how to caption, that's um, that gives instructions because I was just like too many people are asking me for this. I'm my film. I don't know how long it's going to take. Like I don't, you know, do I need to be the first? I don't know. Like it's what? not. I mean, no, I don't need to. And I, I'm not. There's a lot of people who are thinking about this, but I, yeah, I do. I'll, I'll pat myself on the back and like all of my community for like how. Demanding we've been and
0: yeah it's I, I think in a couple of years it'll be a class at film schools and something that you can take online so it becomes part of the screenwriting editing process and yeah said, I
1: actually have an invitation in my inbox to talk to a class that is a class on I forget what it's called it's something like accessible filmmaking or something like that I don't know I nice. forget what it is so <laughs> awesome.
0: Now, uh, this uh, project in particular, has, you mentioned, has been supported by labs and grants. So how did you go about finding and building relationships with these organizations? And how did you approach each one in particular? So did you go in with a goal in mind? For example, the Gotham, I want to go in and make sure that this pass or this program I come out with Uh, producer-attached or something like that. How did you approach the different programs?
1: Yeah, it's been... I mean, they've all been really different for the most part. Like, some of them, as far as... Well, grants, I have, like, different answers to, and then the labs, I have different answers to. So for labs, I've done the Sheffield Meat Market Lab. I just did the Info Rough Cut Lab. In November, and that actually was like totally life changing for this film. So, yeah, working backwards like IFA and then uh, the meat market at Sheffield, I did the Points North lab, which was a, a pitch lab. I did the True False Rough Cut lab, Gotham lab, and the Sundance talent market. Wow. And so the Sundance talent market was the first one I did, which is interesting because that was. At Sundance right before COVID, so now I'm going back um, with the film finished, which is so, amazing. I know it's really full circle and wild. I would say the Gotham, the Talent Forum, first Sundance one. I had no idea what I was doing. I mean, this was like right when I had switched into really making the feature in a more film normal way, whereas basically 2011 when I started writing the film to 2018 that was when i was making it like how i described where i was just applying to grants making a section and then in 2017 i started working with a producer who was like okay it's it's time to like switch and finish this and do this you know like really try and raise all the funding and and so i had in 2019 i had gotten a creative capital grant and so that was still very much like in the way i had been doing everything but All the grants I was always applying for, unless they were just like small little amounts of money, but with Creative Capital, I was applying for like, you know, I want to finish this film. And so that one, in a way, those were like kind of general, like this is the project application. And then Talent Forum and Gotham were when I really started to meet like the players, I guess, in the film industry, mostly in documentary. Um, And So it was it was really like interesting in terms of just starting to meet all these people who I had no idea who most of them were. Like now I understand that I've been really fortunate to have a lot of meetings with a lot of people who've been able to track the project and the the development of the project and come in in various ways, whether it was monetarily or uh, connecting me with someone. So I mean I'll speak very like directly to my experience at Info, which. Well, even actually, the true/false rough cut lab. You know, there were six projects that were invited to that, and we were all supposed to have a rough cut. And my project of of the six was like probably the most of a, a baby. Like we had just, been, it, I think we had just finished our first rough cut. Like it was like basically not that far from an assembly. It was long, awkward, and <laughs> whatever. But you know what? I'm while I was there. I met David Teague, who was one of the mentors there. And he just recently came on as like the finishing editor. Well. So that relationship, you know, I think so much of this is just like you meet someone who speaks the project speaks to them, or they just really get it. And and those are those are your people, you know, like it's so much about again, like this idea of just like listening to what it is that's coming your way and being open to it. And and then when I went to IDVA, I had literally found out about Sundance like it was it was a secret you know like i had found out i think the week before i went and so everything pivoted like i basically was like i didn't think i was ready i i i wasn't even going to submit to sundance i actually somebody from the IDA conference the getting real conference that happened in LA one of the programmers for that came over and watched the edit and he was like you submitted this to sundance right and i had not and he was like you know you really should not be the one to make the decision if you don't get in you should let them decide and so just write them and see if they'll if they'll still let you submit it because it was a little late and they That's said yes advice. that is it's really good advice yeah and, yeah yeah and so then they took it so then when i went to ITVA, i had like such a immediate shift of agenda and needs and it was really clear all the people who were supporting me through ITFA were which right i don't i guess i didn't say but that's the international documentary uh film festival in amsterdam and it has this really amazing market and so they were all like you know i think probably in order for you to get this film done what you're going to need to do is try and find one single post house where you can do everything in one place I mean, and so the Moderator of the pitch forum that I was a part of is from Mexico, and he was like, you know, I know this, I know someone who has a really good like post house in Mexico, and he put me in touch with somebody. I was talking to them about it, and he was at Itfa. So then we met, and he was like, yeah, it's Splendor Omnia, and I almost had a heart attack because Splendor Omnia is Carlos Rodriguez's place. He was one of my very favorite filmmakers, like I three filmmakers that are contemporary filmmakers but I'm just like always waiting for what they make and he's one uh-huh. of them. And so when he said it was Splendor Omnia, I just like almost fell out of my chair. And then, so then I went to Splendor Omnia and wow. I was there for three weeks and finished all the three and a half weeks and did color, sound, visual effects, wow. the credits. Yeah, it was really intense like- and amazing. I did sleep. They are very regimented. Uh, you have three meals a day and everybody's done at a certain time. It's, it's looser than like working in France or something yeah. where everybody's like really hardcore about that. But yeah, it was great. It was just like such a beautiful and meaningful way to finish the film. And also, yeah, I got to, you know, like have lunch every day or breakfast every day with Carlos Regatta. So it was just like, what is
0: happening? <laughs> Tell your story with Premiere Pro, the world's most popular video editing software. Its industry-standard precision editing and trimming tools let you quickly craft the perfect story. For more info, visit adobe.com. It's cool to hear about how people along the journey joined and helped and contributed and yeah. and kind of it came full circle like you mentioned before at these different points. When you were making the film over the course of eleven years, were you sending were email updates to individual people? Was it more just starting a conversation and picking things up fortuitously or or were you did you have a mailing list? How were you keeping people in the loop over the course of this time? Um, I did not have any sort of you know like
1: smart mailing list, and no i mean i I think it was really individual, like certain people that I would, either somebody would be like, oh, you need to reach back out to that person or someone would make an introduction. And then it's so fascinating because and now that I'm at this moment where it's in Sundance, I can feel certain people who didn't have confidence in the project, like having this kind of like, oh, you know, this sense of, a sort of awareness that maybe they like read the project in a I don't I don't even know it's not even really mine to speculate I have no idea but and then there's the people who like believed in it really early and those are just I guess like now I'm at that moment where I'm like everything is like very emotional and it feels yes. so incredible to have finished it and I am thinking about a lot of the people who at the very very beginning were just like how can I kind of keep pushing you along and support this. And not to say that, you know, people who came in later are not like totally angels. They are. And so, yeah, I don't. support just takes, it takes so many different forms and how, and every relationship feels to me like it requires a kind of different thing. So I have no answer that's like a smart, strategic, like have MailChimp and send out, (laughs) you know, email thing every so often. I, I think, I feel like, This film has been much more organic and really like a kind of sometimes really this like one woman siloed project. And then a lot of times like reaching out to people and involving people at various Mm -hmm. times. So,
0: and I'm sure there were people who were critical to the project early on and then fell back for various reasons because it was a decade of work. And then, but their work was still so you know their finger they're they're still a part of it and i think that speaks to i I've, I've only made short films but i feel that too where i'm like oh i would not have been able to shoot or make it through 4 days of shooting if it weren't for this producer who i love but they don't care at all about post production and and right. being okay with letting people go and and Evaluate, valuing them for what they were able to contribute when they were able to contribute. I think that's like yeah, really important to highlight. Absolutely. Um, yeah. It's, I mean, you
1: can't expect someone to come along for 11 years. I, I'm so lucky that um, the main actor, Nike Prince, she's, she is, you know, she's been along the ride for the whole time. Yeah. Been open to it. I don't even really feel like, I mean, maybe at times when it was like sort of waning and I was working on like some other aspect of the project that didn't involve her, I never felt like she was like, I guess that's not happening anymore. Yeah. So that's an actually really amazing relationship. But then, yeah, like the first cinematographer that I worked with, her name's Mina Singh. And I absolutely you know, would have loved to have filmed with her the entire way through, but Her calendar just like, you know, she became much busier than I was at like when I was ready to keep filming at like a certain point. And then what actually was beautiful about that was that then she made recommendations for like another cinematographer and another cinematographer. And then so it's kind of this film made by a village in a way. Yeah. Um, But it's a village that's always listening to whoever was previously in that role because we were matching, you know, we were trying to, I always talk about it like a game of telephone, like where it's like, It's the thing is the original core of the thing is still moving along and being translated, but it's also allowed to shift and change. And that, I think, like working with a sort of elasticity built in and welcomed in the project has really given the project, I think, like really strange and interesting features, you know, that I cherish at this point.
0: And I mean, you called it a listening project and it (laughs) even... The idea of people having to listen to what others had done before and then make it their own. I mean, it just, it feels like this. I love how organic it was and how you let yourself have the time to do it and let it breathe and fall into place. I feel energized by this because a lot of the time I'm like, okay, by the end of this week and by the end of this year, this is going to be done. And then when I don't do it, it because... Things have happened, or we see how projects take on a life of their own, and you have to let them breathe and exist yep. and and fall into place sometimes. and that patience is is hard if you're sometimes because I think we're used to this grind culture of get it done and look at that twenty two year old guy who got his movie into sundance and and that right. doesn't help our own projects, right letting yeah. myself vent a little bit of that. Ah, no, I,
1: I mean, and also though, I want to be transparent that it's not like I was free of anxiety. You know, like I really, there were for the majority of the project, I was like wavering between this sort of like, oh gosh, am I, is this ever going to be done to like, is this going to take me my whole life? I don't want to work on this one film for my whole life. I want to do other things, you know? So yeah, there were some, there were some harrowing periods of time where I was like, ooh, I really hope that this, you know, like, I hope I get to finish it beyond it just being like short films. You yeah. Know? I, although saying that, I don't have a hierarchy. Like, in my mind, it's not like, like, the original goal was to make a feature film, but I actually really love that I have these films that exist in the art world in museums and in installations that are part of this. Like, I love that it's this amorphous project in a way.
0: It seems like by creating the short films that ultimately led to the overarching film, there was urgency, but there was also patience. And so you were getting the satisfaction of completing something and then keeping it moving along. Um, Yeah. And
1: also, though, I would just just like to add one more thing in there, though, is that I really do value this experience of like the deaf and hard of hearing person's experience where you're kind of like getting part of it and you never really are confident that you've gotten all of it. And so that was something that was like a, a kind of guiding North Star for me of like, if I have a language to contribute, it's that this space of kind of misunderstanding is actually really fruitful and kind of rich and interesting. It's like a nice space to mine for yeah. the project. So
0: now this is going back to before this project, but I'd love to speak about how your love of film transformed when you started to learn how to edit in sound yeah okay i have always loved
1: cinema cinema. and then when i was and and so as an artist i really started out making you know these kind of very low-fi video art performances (laughs) Um, and then at a certain point when i was in grad school at uc irvine i had a professor who gave this um like exercise assignment to follow a bunch of these like narrative standard narrative filmmaking techniques and it was yeah i just felt the sort of education of having watched so many films and then doing that like it was really fluid to me it really made sense and i really loved actually the process of thinking through like organizing uh, i mean without realizing i was like Having to think through a shot list, basically, like, you know, making a shot list in order to just figure out how do you actually like construct a a scene and film it and like choreograph it and then edit it and put it together. And when I got to the very end stage, I realized that I had this real affinity for sound design. And immediately it was just like empowering and beautiful. And also kind of like, oh, yeah, of course. Like, of course I would have an affinity for sound design because I'm thinking about sound all the time. Like, of course I would. So in some ways, I actually think that similar to the captioning, the sound design, like my ability with sound design came from this space of having been so studied about my experience, because I'm not just like hearing throughout the day. I'm also constantly analyzing how I'm hearing what I'm not hearing correctly. And then that's evolved into like noticing things like I remember when I was right before I was filming this sort of like four week film shoot for the tuba themes. I was staying at my friend Sophie's house in Mount Washington, which is a neighborhood in Los Angeles. There was construction happening down her street and I, and she had a hammock. I was laying on the hammock and I was listening to all these birds and then all, all the construction beeping. And I was so aware of the way they were like accompanying one another and, and how, my friend Sophie who I was staying with she's a meditator and she was so irritated by the construction and I remember just thinking like oh this is so fascinating like this relationship I have of like my interest in the birds and in the construction sound is equal there's not one is not like the enemy of the other I mean one is in terms of like environmentally I can absolutely feel that kind of like anger but then in terms of sonically or orally, i was like just really genuinely curious about the sound so i don't know if that's exactly the question you were asking me but i think like for me sound editing is really comes much more from like a kind of deaf part of hearing experience of the world
0: well let's this is our last question and it's and it, of course if there's anything else you want to to talk about we can we can leave that for the end. But what advice do you have for an emerging filmmaker somebody who is about to declare that they're going to make their first feature film? I think my I, my advice is selfish
1: because I want to stop seeing the same old stuff <laughs> over and over again. But it's also I think generous advice which is, you know, to really really work hard on rewriting rules it's it's helpful for all of us to have structure and rules for ourselves but the other people's rules are can be can lead to really bland work and repetitive work and I think if you have that an allegiance to rules that other people have constructed what gets sort of lost in that is a recognition that those rules were usually constructed based on solving a sort of problem that existed. And those problems are not relevant to us right now, or not relevant to us and whatever bodies we're in, or not relevant to where we live in the world. And so I think freeing yourself from the kind of like jail of film rules and that feels to me like Like, if I have advice, it's to do a kind of deep investigation into like what rules you are maybe unwittingly believing in, which ones you feel pressure to follow, and to be be very agnostic. Um, Like, don't necessarily be a believer in a certain way.
0: Yeah, that's great advice. Thank you. Mm -hmm. Thank you. Oh well, thank you so much, Allison. It was it was a pleasure. And thank to you. our listeners, you got to go see *The Two of Thieves*. Uh, stay tuned. Thank you, Allison O'Daniel, for joining us. I loved our conversation. I think I said amazing a thousand times. Because truly, she inspired me, and I can't wait for this film to be out into the world. Thank you, listeners, for tuning in. And if you liked the podcast, you can rate it, you can subscribe to us, you can find us on the web at NoFilmSchool.com, follow us on Twitter and Facebook and YouTube, and send your questions to editor at NoFilmSchool.com. Thanks for listening.